Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and I am finally back in the United States, one full month away. I want to thank all of you for sticking with us. Uh, last week's episode, the part one of the history of Israel and Palestine, was one of our most listened to episodes. And so because of that, and because of some of the comments that I got from you, uh, we'll be doing a part two. My hope is to get that up uh, later this week. But I'm really excited to welcome back Isaac Saul from Tangle. He's been writing about uh, this issue uh, ever since the beginning of the conflict and has a lot of experience before this conflict, uh, thinking, talking, writing about it. Uh, and so I wanted to welcome him in a first of what will be many episodes we do on the contemporary questions around this conflict. And we'll continue to lay out the history as well. I also want to continue to encourage you all to send in your questions. I've got a long list of questions that I've gotten even from the first history that we did. And I'm sure this discussion will prompt many, many more. Uh, but before we go any further, Isaac, welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and welcome back to you. Uh, glad to be back on the show together. Yes, uh, I noticed that you had written about this from you know the very first days after the Hamas attack. And so I figured you'd be a great person to talk to uh, for your sake and our listeners' sake, you know, what we want to tackle today, there's so many things we could talk about, but sort of three buckets of issues. One is just an update on the current situation. Two is the internal debate within the United States. Uh, and then the question of uh, the media and how the media has covered this. So that's those are three issues that we're going to hit. And as a reminder to people who are listening to this for the first time, uh, we've hit the historical issues last week and we'll hit them later this week. And uh, there are a lot of issues that we're not going to touch on today. And if you don't hear something on this that you want to hear, just send us a note and we'll make sure to cover it if it's within our ability. But Isaac, I think a place to start here is just give us a scene setter. You know, as we sit here today on October 31st, around 2 p.m. Eastern time, where does the conflict stand? Yeah, so the current situation is basically that Israel appears to be ramping up the the long anticipated ground invasion. Uh, the IDF is, you know, releasing basically hype videos of commanders giving out orders to soldiers and preparing them to go into battle. Obviously, Israel has been bombarding the Gaza Strip since the attacks from Hamas. So it's been about a couple of weeks of that now. And over the last couple of days, we've gotten these sort of intermittent reports of soldiers moving in, Israeli soldiers moving in through the northwest of Gaza. And we've seen images of tanks in Gaza, of Israeli tanks in Gaza. We have reports that Israel has retrieved at least one Israeli soldier. I think they've now brought the total of five hostages back to Israel safely. So it's quite obvious now that the IDF is in Israel, that they're acting or th that they're in Gaza and that they're acting, you know, within Gazan territory. One of the big issues that we have as reporters and news consumers and information consumers is that there just simply aren't a ton of reporters on the ground in Gaza anymore. Many journalists have been killed in this latest spate of bombardment. Uh, many have just simply fled because it's not a place that's safe to be currently. And a lot of the, the Western media, the Western reporters we do have are in Israel, which you know gives them access to what the IDF is telling us about this current ground incursion. But you know, they're also relying a lot on sources that are inside Gaza where we've seen, you know, electricity and internet and phone be intermittent or go out. And so the information system, quite frankly, is pretty poor right now, which I'm sure we're going to talk a bit when we get to the media section. But I think it's quite clear that Israel is about to make what we've been expecting, which is a basically full ground invasion of Gaza. Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting you say that because Obviously, none of us really know there was this media blackout over the weekend. It seems like a lot of commentators are suggesting that this is a more gradual approach. Like it's not the sort of blitzkrieg that people were expecting and that either due to American pressure or, or split within the cabinet or just a sense that there aren't defined aims, that Israel is, is taking this slow and they're indicating that this could be months, if not a year worth of conflict. And that it might be like a kind of a siege approach. Like, what's your prediction? Obviously, I think this is an impossible question to ask, but like if you were to game out what 
this thing looks like a week or two from now. Do you think it'll still be a siege or do you think there'll be deep into Gaza with tanks and troops on the ground? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. I mean, you're you're definitely right that there was almost a a response to what I think was a slower than expected movement from the IDF that amounted to, you know, why is this delay happening? Why haven't they gone in, you know, guns blazing basically like we expected them to? And the response to that question was a, maybe they don't have sufficient military intelligence to go in and root out Hamas the way they want to, and they're gathering that intelligence. A lot of other people uh, and a lot of you know military analysts whom I trust a great deal have reported or speculated that Israel was waiting for the United States to sort of organize itself as an ally and a partner in the region because they suspect that this war might spread throughout the Middle East, obviously, Hezbollah in Lebanon is already firing rockets on Israel. We've seen the U.S. respond to strikes from Iranian proxies in Syria. I mean, it is expanding, I think, and escalating pretty quickly. And if you're Israel, you want to make sure you have the full backing of your Western, you know, United States, European allies. So I certainly think that both of those theories, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. There's probably truth in both of them, the the planning and intelligence gathering part of it, and also the the assuredness that their allies are behind them and that they have some backing in the region in case this thing, you know, spirals out of control and escalates to a point that they feel like they've lost the handle on it. Uh, but yeah, to your point, I mean, it is really, really hard to predict what this looks like. I don't know where we draw the line between, you know, a siege and a full-scale invasion. I think it's very clear based on the the air bombardments that Israel does not want there to be many civilians who are in at least the northern strip of Gaza when they come in. I mean, um, and I don't mean they're they're trying to slaughter them. I think they're trying to push them south, though obviously there's been a ton of uh, civilian casualties. And then they want to go in and, you know, find these hostages they believe to be in tunnels that are built under Gaza by Hamas or in, you know, old buildings, apartment buildings, hospitals, whatever, where they're firing rockets from. So, yeah, again, I don't really know where that line gets drawn. I uh, my prediction would certainly be that we're going to see many tanks and Israeli soldiers in the Gaza Strip in the coming weeks. I think there is a little bit of wishful thinking from some of the people commenting and reporting on this that they hope that maybe there's some restraint. Based on the rhetoric and the signals I've seen from the Israeli government, I do not believe that we will see much restraint. I think they're going to go in trying to kill as many members of Hamas as they can. And, you know, I assume, I hope, also retrieve many of the Israeli and American hostages who are, who are being held there. Yeah, I, I read this article in the, the Economist this morning, basically comparing this to Mosul, Fallujah, like some of these urban counterinsurgency fights. And, you know, the article, I think, did its best to try to compare and contrast. And I think I was left thinking about this. And it's just, there's no comparison for a number of reasons. Number one is Israel to Gaza and Hamas is not the same as the United States to any force in Iraq. Like this was a, you know, there was a faraway war. Like no matter what people listening to this may think about Israel's justification for the invasion of Gaza, uh, it's their next door neighbor. And it's, it's just a way different dynamic. But more than that, the existence of tunnels, 1,300 plus tunnels uh, by the estimation of some experts, 1,300 plus, which is a staggering number given how small this territory is. And during 2014, during that conflict, the tunnels weren't just used to hide. They were used to provide ambushes. They were used to do cross-border raids. Like that level of complexity, it's almost like going from 2D to 3D, right? Like you have the air, you have the ground, and now you have underground, right? Like this is like nothing we've ever seen before. And you have the fact that the civilians are boxed in completely, which was not true of Iraq. It was not true of Fallujah. Uh, It wasn't true of like some of these other wars, like in the Philippines and Algeria that people are describing. This will be like nothing we've ever seen. And by the way, uh, social media and other internet technologies have only advanced since the last conflict. And as we'll get to, there's 
there seems to be a much different language of the global left, including the U.S. left, around how they view uh, warfare and terrorism, that when you put it on top of this... Oh, and by the way, the fact that there's a divided government perpetrating this uh, in... Perpetrating is probably the wrong word, but you know, fighting this war on Israel's behalf, which is Netanyahu's in, in the hot seat, to say the least. This is more complex and, I would say, precarious for Israel... Uh, we'll get to the Palestinians for sure, but per- if you're thinking just from the Israeli perspective, this is very, very, very precarious. And I'm left wondering, what is success for this war? Yeah, it, I, I was. I'm literally the words that were coming out of my mouth were were that I would add another layer of complexity, which is that we don't have the answer to that question. Oh yeah, and add the hostages, by the way, to the complexity I was talking about, which I didn't talk about, which hostages and tunnels, which is which they're probably in them, obviously, in all certainty, and probably spread out. Yeah, so you have everything that you just described, like all the layers of this centuries-old conflict, the complexity of what's happening on the ground, the social media, the information war we're having, the fact that there are 200 hostages involved. I mean, don't forget, you know, it wasn't so long ago, Israel was releasing thousands of Palestinian prisoners in exchange for one Israeli hostage. There's 200 there. Plus, yeah. yeah, plus there are American and other foreigners who are being held hostage there. So it's not just the Israeli government trying to get one of its soldiers back. You also have American, you know, German, French, whatever. There's all these European countries who are invested in this as well, who are worried about their citizens being held hostage. And then to your point, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we know what success looks like. I mean, I just saw, you know, I think it was yesterday, WikiLeaks released this internal document that they purport to show, you know, that that Israel's end game here is they're hoping to push a significant portion of the Palestinian population into Egypt as as refugees, that that would be a version, you know, of an outcome that's acceptable. Yeah, kind them. of like what the what happened many, many decades ago with Jordan, right? Which, you know, for listeners, Jordan's population right now is about half Palestinian refugees. And Although Jordan's relationship to the West Bank has been complicated, they've largely assimilated the Palestinian refugees into their country. This has never been true of Egypt, who from the get-go on Gaza has never truly embraced the Palestinian refugee population. And I think puzzlingly, although I have my thoughts on why, are never really castigated the way that, you know, I mean, obviously Israel has a unique relationship to this conflict, but you'd think Egypt would have way more heat on it for the fact that they're blocking the other side. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, and, and, you know, I think most Zionist Jews would point to that as being an example of, you know, like a classic anti-Semitic trope that Israel takes a disproportionate amount of blame for this when the Arab world is also not rushing in to defend Palestinians. And, you know, for what it's worth, I mean, Egypt's stated reasons, at least, for not wanting to accept a lot of Palestinian refugees are really not dissimilar to Israel's. I mean, they're they're nearly identical, which is they just cite security concerns, you know, that they're worried about extremists coming into their country, especially given what's happened in Egypt over the past few decades and the kind of, you know, liberalization of the country as a whole that we've seen. I mean, they've They've done a better job of handling a lot of extremism than other places in the Arab world. And I think they feel that's a, a bit tenuous, uh, a tenuous moment to sort of navigate something like this crisis. So, yeah, I don't know, you know, h- how many Hamas leaders they have to kill. How many, how many Hamas leaders are there? How many members of Hamas are there? I don't even know if we have a great answer to that. I've seen estimates from, you know, it five is an to inexhaustible of resource. It was yeah. a really good Thomas Friedman interview, which I thought, a sentence I thought I'd never say. But he he said something like, if I had a nickel for every time Israel claimed to com- kill the number two in Hamas, he'd be a rich man. Like, th- it's just a never-ending thing. There there will be no end to this militarily, in my opinion, which is why, I went, like, they're saying they're going to snuff out Hamas. Like, I don't know if that's possible. Like, I really don't. And I sympathize with them. And, and we get to part two of this, I'll... Um, I want to save like this sort of reading of the Hamas attack in the beginning for part two, because I think it really dovetails with some of the feelings I have about what's happening in this country and how people in this country have viewed that. But I sympathize uh, with Israel wanting vengeance and also to protect its territory from what clearly to me seem like sociopathic nutcases 
uh, and an ideology that is incompatible with liberal democracy, right? No matter what people think about how imperfect Israel is as a democracy, Hamas is a religious fundamentalist organization that's creating a fundamentalist state where women have their rights curtailed. It is not safe to be gay. Um, it is a place that even in its educational institutions and in its criminal justice system, where they do things like amputations for thefts and things that it's almost like borderline Wahhabism, right? They're explicitly anti-Semitic and in their original charter call for the destruction of Israel. Uh, they traffic in Nazi and anti-Semitic tropes and symbolism. They have at every stage of the way, and I and I and I laid this out somewhat in in part two, part one of the history, and in part two, it'll be even more clear. Have sabotaged the peace process, uh, and they explicitly jumped in during the Oslo years, and they were in some company. Which, if, if you kind of read between the lines in some of the history, it's like it's hard to avoid that they're not the only people who sabotage that history. But I would rank them number one. Uh, in terms of sabotaging Oslo and explicitly wanting to. And so you look at that and say, like, I, I sympathize with Israel wanting to snuff out Hamas. I just don't know if you can. Like, like per, uh, Thomas Friedman's point, it's like, how many number twos, number ones in Hamas can you kill before you have to actually think about it like we did the war on terrorists in the US after like many, many bungled, stupid things we did? We realized you just can't keep killing like you can kill as many high value targets as you can, but you need another strategy. You need to, you need to, in some ways, try to change the perception on the ground. Yeah, I mean, look, I, m my personal view is that there is not a military option that is, you know, going to be an adequate response. Sufficient, I I, probably. Yeah, yeah, I don't maybe think necessary. A definitely not sufficient. Yeah. Right, and, and you know, interestingly enough, I, I think this is actually a point that you know, maybe some Zionists and some pro-Palestinian people can agree on. I mean, I, I listened to Yusuf Meneer, who I think is, you know, he's a Palestinian writer and activist who I think is maybe one of the best at standing up for and speaking for the Palestinian cause that, that I've heard. And I heard him say the other day in an interview, you know, Israel has no good options on the table. Now, from his view, of course, like, that is because of Israeli policies and it's because of, you know, what it took to form the state of Israel over the last century. But his conclusion, I think, is still the same as people who might be pro-Israel or might be Zionist, which is there are literally no good options on the table. It's something that he totally concedes. I mean, you you stop everything you're doing and then you show Hamas that they can level an attack like this without getting a response and kind of rally the Arab world to their side. You go into this war the way it looks like they might be going into, and then you're in this like Vietnam-style quagmire like we just talked about. I mean, unlike anything we've ever seen, probably nothing we can compare it to what might be coming given all the complexities of it. Many Israeli soldiers are going to die. The conflict's going to worsen long term you do the thing you know many people on the american left are calling for you just like totally pull out you lift the blockade all this stuff whatever then okay now we have like probably food and water and electricity and things like that flowing into gaza that should be flowing into gaza and humanitarian aid but you also have weapons and trade and the support from the arab world coming in and then hamas is going to be strengthened and now this this group that has just proved to everybody how barbaric they can be are going to be, you know, enshrined as the political leaders and hold the future of Gaza in their hands and the future of the Palestinian state in their hands. And that's not really a realistic or acceptable option for anybody in Israel and a lot of people in the Western world either. So there are literally no good options on the table. And I think you have to start talking about what's the least bad option. Yep. But you know, from a military perspective, yeah, I don't see anything that can happen here that'll end up being defined as a success. There are too many goals of this conflict. And, and honestly, I don't know what I'd take off the table, but they're, they're at least destroy Hamas, free the 200 plus hostages, minimize casualties, hopefully on both sides, uh, and then emerge with a durable future, right? And now I don't know if those four things can happen. And especially the fourth, which I think is as important as anything. Like, and it's a, like you level the entirety of the Gaza Strip and then Egypt doesn't take in the refugees. Now what? Like, what do you do at this point? Like you, you've potentially set up a more radicalized situation, right? And so it's like, like what you do, I think is really difficult here. And I think this gets to the question of, and I do want to get to the Palestinian death toll too, because I, I, 
I recognize we have not spoken about that and, and I do want to talk about it. But before we do, I want to get to that question of whether there are viable options and who bears responsibility for that, right? I think in going back over this history, I personally don't love the, let's pick a point in time, pull out an anecdote and say, ah, like, you know, this is what happened in 2014 or this is what happened in 1967, et cetera. My reading on the history is that with time, uh, culpability changed pretty dramatically. Like, I think like my my sympathy for different people at the beginning of this conflict, uh, at the creation of the state of Israel has changed a lot since today. My view tends to be that uh, although I think like the British uh, really bungled uh, the creation of the state, that um, I also believe that the Holocaust was a unique historical moment, and this was a population that was near extinction. And and I understand completely why they created the state of Israel. I do think they totally screwed up how they communicated this and allocated land and respected the the rights of the people existing there and living. And then I think like as the conflict went on, when Israel is being invaded over and over and over again by its neighbors, that to me creates a mentality of survival amongst a population that was nearly extinct before the start of the state of Israel. And that combined psychology makes me totally understand Israel's positioning here. And I do think that that psychology is often missing in the debates around the state of Israel. Um, and I think so up until like 93 to 2000, I am like hardcore, not like me being in those years, but as I read the history, I'm like hardcore, like I, I'm very sympathetic to basically everything Israel is doing. And I think till this day, I think people would probably still classify me as pro-Israel, but I think it gets complicated once Netanyahu gets on the scene. Like once it's starting in the mid nineties, he expands these settlements in the West Bank and I think engages in uh, almost Israeli identity politics continuously manipulates this population. And I think with each year of Netanyahu's governance, it becomes harder and harder to make peace almost by design because his, his government didn't want peace. And so I still think most people would characterize me as pro-Israeli. Uh, and I certainly am considerably more pro-Israeli than what I'm seeing from the American online left. But I'm left feeling very mixed about the current situation because I don't trust Netanyahu. As By the way, most of the Israelis don't anymore either. I don't trust him either to keep Israel safe. I don't trust him to exercise sound judgment in this invasion. And I don't trust his motives when it comes to building a durable peace in the West Bank. Um, because with each passing year, they're making it harder and harder and harder for people to come to the table. And he's he's almost punishing the more moderate members of the Palestinian coalition, right? Like he's like, I don't know how we wound up with a contiguous Gaza, but a pockmarked West Bank. You know what I'm saying? Like, how, do, how is this the reality that we have today? Um, and so, although I, I, I deeply sympathize with Israel, and if I were them, I'd want vengeance, I'd want to protect myself, I'd want to get my hostages back. I'd also have major questions about this leadership. Yeah, I mean, I don't see any way Netanyahu survives this. I mean, anecdotally, I'll tell you, I'm a Jew. I've lived in Israel. I have a lot of friends who still live in Israel uh, because when I lived in Israel, I actually lived in a yeshiva and a religious boys' school, despite you know being raised very reform and basically secular. Um, I um, many of my connections in Israel are also deeply religious and deeply Zionist, and in speaking to them over the last three weeks checking in on friends, family, whatever, the the attitudes towards Netanyahu have changed so remarkably because, I mean, if you just step out and look at him as a leader, I mean, my in my opinion, he is a total failed leader. And I think your sort of brief overview there of the history and and how your sympathies kind of wane and wax over time is, is not totally dissimilar to mine. It's actually pr pretty much aligned. And, you know, he has now had a corruption scandal where he, from everything I've seen, the evidence I've seen was probably guilty. He has the judicial reform that tore the country apart at the seams. I mean, you know, literally, it, it was a few months ago that the Israeli military, members of the Israeli military were protesting, were walking out on their posts over what he did, which is unfathomable. I mean, given the history of this country and the the kind of like, 
the dedication to acts of service that exists there, I mean, really speaks to how divided the country was before this war started. And now, I mean, the one thing that many Israelis, you know, even center left or center right Israelis have fallen back on about Netanyahu is he's he's the soldier. He's he's like the image of this strong man who was going to protect the Israeli population no matter what. And now, on top of everything else, he's overseen the deadliest attack, the biggest security failure in the history of the country. And he's about to drag them into a war with no goal where a lot of Israeli people are going to die. And these 200 hostages who are being held there are going to be in grave danger. So, you know, I think the country has to unite right now, as most countries do in response to acts like this. I mean, you know, you can go back and look at 9-11 is probably like a nice parallel here where all of a sudden 90 percent of the country supports George Bush, who's now one of the least popular presidents ever. But, you know, when when this dust settles, I think he will almost assuredly be ousted. I don't see any way how he doesn't get voted out. And I think he can and should go down as one of the worst leaders and prime ministers in the history of the country. I mean, in my opinion, again, complete failure in basically every measurable way, um, aside from the growth of the Israeli economy over the last couple of decades. But that, that's pretty much all he's going to have that is, you know, hang his hat on. Yeah. And his record goes back, right? Like you remember that uh, Yitzhak Rabin's widow blamed Netanyahu for that death. Now that that might have been an extreme reaction, but from that point forward, Netanyahu was playing a very, very dangerous game. Uh, and in part two uh, of the history that we post, um, though, we'll share a story about there's this tunnel at the Temple Mount area, the Al-Aqsa uh, compound that Netanyahu opened up in the 90s uh, in a very provocative act. And I explain the kind of politics of that moment in this history that I share. And it's like, he's been playing these games forever. And then like the extension of the settlements for people who are listening, like it's not just a moral crisis as it relates to Palestinian land, um, but it's a security crisis. Because if you think of it as like surface area, right? Like the surface area of Israel is really important for its security. It's a small state with not a lot of people. And so if you have just straight lines, they're much easier to protect than if you have these little dots everywhere. Uh, and that's what they've created in the West Bank is one little dot after another, and then crisscrossing highways. Um, and when I went there for the first time, when I worked at the UN in 2009 or 2009 or 2010, I sat on this hill and overlooked as I was talking to experts there. And they were like, look, this is where it's going and this is where it's been. And this is why it's going to be impossible to create any contiguous lasting peace. Uh, and it's the combinations of all that, plus what you mentioned around the judicial reforms. And, you know, the judicial reforms also related to the settlements, by the way, because he he wanted to protect this really weird ruling that the courts made allowing, or that his government passed, allowing what were considered illegal settlements at the time to be illegal, and it got pretty widespread condemnation, um, even internal to Israel. But then he attacked the deep state, as he saw it, which is language that I think is pretty familiar to our listeners. Like He went after all the machinery of the government uh, involved in national security and the rule of law because he felt threatened by them and then uh, wound up appointing a lot of unqualified people to critical national security posts. And here, we, here's where we find ourselves. Yeah. I, I, and I'll add one more thing to that too, which is that, you know, one of the common refrains I've heard from many of my like American Jewish friends or, you know, Western Zionists or whatever they are, people who are generally on the pro-Israel side is where are the the kind of peaceful Palestinian protesters where where's like the the peaceful movement to find a solution to this conflict coming from the Palestinian side and i would say that Netanyahu also deserves blame for what he's done to those people i mean the the number of Palestinian activists who have you know, had their rights infringed, been thrown in jail, whatever, you name it, you go down the list in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Israel, wherever else, who who have, I mean, literally become pariahs under his time and rule that there's just zero space for them to exist. And then the, you know, his shepherding, frankly, of the American political movement against things like the BDS stuff, which is, you know, a, an act of a peaceful protest. And, you know, when, when you box those people out, when you put those people in prison, when you leave no space for that kind of stuff, for these sort of like 
quote unquote anti-Israel movements, I think it it just raises the temperature. It increases the temperature in the room. And that has happened under his leadership too. And I think, you know, it's kind of a less talked about but equally important element of this, which is I think for a lot of Palestinian voices, Arab voices, there is this sense that Netanyahu has been so good and so successful at stifling any dissent to, you know, his vision of what Israel can and should be, which again, is not something that is universally agreed upon in Israel. He actually has a very divisive, you know, vision of what Israel should be. But he's been so good at that, that there's just this kind of desperation that's born out of that, that I think is, you know, under discussed and also really important in the context of all the other things he's done, like the West Bank expansions and things like that. Yeah, there was, you know, my favorite example of this was when Abbas got the sort of non, I forget what it was called, non-permanent status, uh, observer status at the UN, Netanyahu called it diplomatic terrorism. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, like you could have your reasons. And I was there during those debates. I worked at the UN. I might not have done it, right? Like I, I, this is why I think people still consider me pretty pro-Israeli. Anti-Netanyahu pro-Israeli is probably an accurate way to put me. But you, if you call everything terrorism, what is what are people going to do, right? Now, I'm not saying that he's responsible for, you know, Hamas like dismembering babies. I mean, they're they're squarely responsible for that and need to be condemned, which we'll talk about. Um, but I think uh, a necessary precondition for some kind of viable future here is that we need more leaders like Ehud Barak and Yitzhak Rabin, and even where Sharon was going to be, right? Like Sharon before he fell into a coma. Seemed ready to do way more than Netanyahu ever would have, uh, in informing a unity government and indicating that he had had enough. Because I think any reasonable person looking at this knows that it's not tenable in the long term. Like yeah. it's not tenable. No, I think that's a perfect example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Is is that sort of framework for giving somebody a seat, you know, at the UN? And and I would say I I. I to to be clear here, I think it actually is a good question. You know, where's the where's the Palestinian Nelson Mandela or MLK or whatever? I, like somebody who has credibility with the Palestinian people, who is also you know charting a path forward that's very distinct and different from what Hamas is doing. I think that's a totally reasonable question. I just think it's important to state clearly that there has been no space really given for that person to emerge, in my opinion, at least in the last, you know, 15 or 20 years. And I think that's something that Netanyahu deserves a lot of blame for. Yeah, I think Fayyad is probably the closest thing to it. And, you know, people who listen to the next history, you'll you'll hear what happened to him. But he was a very competent leader. I met him when I went to the West Bank no kidding. Uh, back in 2009. It was kind of when he was in his heyday. Uh, and he was the guy that we were working with. He was the guy we trusted. And um, he was sidelined, both Hamas and Abbas. So like you have two problems in the territories. One is extremism uh, in Hamas. And then you have corruption when it comes to the traditional Palestinian authority. Fayyad was this island of competence and institution building. And uh, he was sidelined because he threatened everybody. Uh, you know, like he wasn't like a visionary figure in the sense that he wasn't like able to garner the kind of like mass movement support that a lot of people would, but he was a guy who understood that like making sure the dollars of sense, there's tremendous amount of aid heading into the territories at that time that was getting stolen essentially by the Palestinian authority. And it was also during the period of time when Hamas was ascendant and undermining the Palestinian authority. Um, we need more leaders like that. And I think it's very hard to exist in, in, in this current environment that way. Um, one thing, let's, let's talk about just the, the civilian toll here uh, before we talk about the sort of domestic situation. As of this morning when I was reading this, the Hamas-run health ministry says that more than 8,000 people have died, 3,000 children. Um, the Economist used a sat satellite imagery uh, and found that over one-tenth of the housing stock in Gaza has been destroyed. Uh, Israel has dropped 6,000 bombs on the territory in the first six days of the war alone. And the articles in the, in, the, in the Economist, which we'll link to, I think do a good job of trying to put into context, like, what do you think about like a Hamas figure or whatever? And they, they talk about that and they're, they're sort of, their headline is, look, we were skeptical of this too, but actually the Hamas description of their methodology seems pretty accurate. Um, they also do a really good job of comparing in a different article, or it might be the same article, 
how do you put in context the amount of civilian deaths that we've seen in this fight with other urban warfare? And essentially, they found that this is either in line or paradoxically fewer civilian, civilian casualties, which I think would be interesting to our audience. You could read it. Some people might be upset at me even mentioning that, but you should read it. And that doesn't mean you have to find it acceptable. But I just do think it's important because nobody really knows how to put into context X number of civilian casualties. So you could read that article and come to your own conclusions. They compare it to things like Mosul, Fallujah, things like that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I actually haven't seen that Economist article and I will look forward to reading it um, because just based on what you just said there, it sounds like it adds a good deal of important context. I mean, I, I would say two things. Like one, I don't think, I think everybody, anytime you see anything come out of Gaza right now, you should just approach it with skepticism, whether it's coming from the IDF, coming from the Gaza Health Ministry, coming from the United Nations, because there's so, again, there's so few reporters on the ground. Uh, obviously, I'm showing my my bias towards reporters a little bit here, but I do think like there's, we, we need that kind of independent verification and investigation of things. Um, I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit more in the media section, but you know, you go look at the like what what happened in the hospital bombing, it, it's it's very obvious that there are some things that are going to come out and spread quickly that are, I think, fairly qualified as misinformation or at least bad information. O on the other side of that coin, though, this, the second thing I would say is, you know, we have had the the health ministry reporting numbers on casualties after Israeli strikes or after spates of violence like this for, you know, a couple of decades um, under Hamas rule. And we do often see that their numbers end up being fairly close to, you know, what the United Nations finds, what independent war crime investigators find when like these kinds of, you know, postmortems happen after these spates of violence. It often isn't that divorced from reality. So, you know, if they're saying there's 8,000, 10,000 people who have been killed, I don't think we're going to, at the end of this war, come and find out that it was 500. You know, maybe we'll find out that it's 5,000 or 6,000 or something like that. But my my strong suspicion is that this is not going to be something that's like orders of magnitude off based on the historical record of what we have, which I think, you know, again, is really important for everybody to, to carry with them. Um, again, that doesn't mean you have to accept or believe everything that comes out. But it's it's definitely, in my opinion, and my sort of like professional perspective as a reporter here, I think it's a number that's worth quoting and worth contextualizing. It's not something that I would, you know, write off as total propaganda or something the way I might be skeptical of something that comes out of like Russian state media, which has a much stronger track record of totally embellishing things. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that I think the skepticism comes from this, you know, high profile event at the hospital bombing where Hamas appeared to lie uh, about that. And I think that people looked at that and were like, I think they're, they're, they're viewing all stats coming from us, I think understandably with some skepticism. But I think what I want to ask of people is why go, like you always should ask yourself what you're trying to do with the data, right? Like, you know, I very admittedly tend to be like my mind like bends me towards more sympathy to the Israeli overall cause. And I try to overcorrect for that, even in podcasts like this and in the history that I do, because I, you know, I, all things being equal, I'm a relatively pro-Israeli person. And so I try to steel man the other side. Like in, in looking at statistics, I think what I'm seeing online is just a baffling sense of extreme bias in the way people are communicating to each other. That is makes me very uncomfortable. I think this is a good segue to the U.S. left's response. Now, let me start here by saying this was the this the, this began right, and you know people will, will quibble with what started what, but I would say that the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust is a is a starting point of something. That doesn't mean we ignore any context, but when you kill fourteen hundred people, mostly innocents, and kidnap more than two hundred. Uh, and you kill grandmothers, babies, innocent people, young teenage girls, people at a concert, you know, in an essentially a medieval Mongol raid in the 21st century with video uh, evidence that for all to see what happened by a radical group uh, that's bent on the destruction of the people and the country. And then I have people I know very dearly and have collaborated with on a lot of things immediately, and I'm talking before the the invasion, 
uh, before anything happened, immediately justifying that atrocity and sympathizing with Hamas to me is an absolute disgrace. Everything I said about Israel, there's some people who are more pro-Israel than me that are going to hate everything I just said. And certainly the history I give, which I try to be overly cautious about representing the Palestinian narrative and history as the facts um, warrant. All of that aside, this was an absolutely evil and despicable act. And I am really, really dismayed at the way that the American left has responded to it. And I'd be interested in how you feel about it. Yeah. So I'll say two things. Uh, first, just like a personal anecdote. And then second, uh, you know, just how I generally why I think it's coming out the way it is. The, the personal anecdote is, you know, every American Jew, myself included, grew up hearing tales about anti-Semitism and kind of, you know, anti-Jew violence from our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles. And we, you know, sort of dismissed a lot of that, I think. You know, I'm I'm 32 years old. I never experienced anything more than like some ugly Jew jokes growing up. I mean, I it, it, I can call that anti-Semitism if I want, but the truth is like I've I very rarely encountered situations where systemically um, you know, I was being held down because I was a Jew or I experienced actual literal violence because I was a Jew. And so I always viewed my mom and my grandmother as sort of paranoid and and worrying too much and all this stuff. And so after these attacks happen, I think my experience has been really similar to a lot of other American Jews that I've, you know, spoken to and heard from, which is like, whoa, like this is out there in a way. And and I'm not just ta- I'm not talking about like pro-Palestine protests. I'm talking about like the fact that I can't go online or log onto Twitter or Instagram and read the comments of an article or see some like person with a hundred thousand followers tweeting blatantly like anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish stuff. And then also it's very, very jarring to see some of the justification for the kind of, you know, the the Jewish slaughter that occurred in Israel and the sort of soft support of Hamas as like this, you know, renegade group that's fighting for freedom. It's alarming. It's really unsettling. I, you know, spent the first weekend after the attacks going to synagogue and, you know, I had to volunteer to be a security guard at my local synagogue, which is something I'm now training for, which is like insane. This stuff shouldn't be happening in 2023. But the night I went to synagogue after the attacks happened, the first Shabbat afterwards, there was like a 45-year-old woman who's standing outside who wants to be inside praying in like a security jacket. And they make an announcement during services. They're looking for volunteers for security guards. I'm like, you know, I'm a young guy in good shape. I should be the one doing this, not not this woman who's been praying at this shul for 20 years or whatever. So that's a personal anecdote. On, on the response as a whole, I would say like, I think there is a really important dynamic here that is kind of a westernization of this conflict, which is that in my experience, many people on the left tend to view any entity, group, country, whatever, that has power as being fundamentally immoral. I think that is like a leftist lens that is often used and projected onto a lot of these issues. And I think, you know, concurrently, any group that is marginalized, oppressed, you know, lacks power, lacks influence, is viewed as being moral, is viewed as being more ethic. And that is like the the thing that they come to a conflict like this with. So it doesn't matter to them, the leftists that I've observed and seen and engaged with, that Hamas did something that is so obviously immoral and gross and horrific and, you know, just an like unspeakably awful thing. All that matters to them is that they are representing, quote unquote, I don't actually think they represent the Palestinian people, but they, in in the mind of the leftists, are fighting for representing the Palestinian cause. And because Palestinian people lack this power, they view this as like a, a higher moral ground, a higher ethical ground. And because Israel has this power, and, and I agree, Israel is the military power in this dynamic, they view them as being fundamentally immoral and fundamentally illegitimate. And 
that is a black and white, simple lens for this conflict that I don't think, you know, aptly covers what's actually going on here. But worse, the outcome of it, the fact that like, we have these college kids or these intellectuals, you know, now we're seeing professors and all this stuff come to the defense of the college students, justifying something like what happened is just, I don't, I don't know. I don't have the words for it. I mean, it, it is so terrifying and also just so backward and wrong and, you know, su- such a lazy way to view it. Um, yeah, they don't know the history. They yeah, don't know the history, yeah. by the way. So, like, this is why I did the history, not just for that particular viewpoint, but it's just I think there's just, like, the history is so botched. Like, it really is. And I, and I see it even in, like, pro-Israel stuff that I would tend to agree with their conclusion. Like, when I read the free press, for example, it's like, they, they're just like, like, if you know the history, there's papering over the complexity of everything. But I think, like, as you're describing it, like, the power, non-power dynamic here, you would think that they would then extend the the sense of grace and sympathy to the creation of the state of Israel than to a group of people who were powerless for centuries, who were driven out of their land by an empire, who then uh, were persecuted everywhere they went. You know, the Tsar Nicholas uh, in Russia, uh, the Dreyfus affair, right? Um, The Holocaust, like all of these events and how central they were to the creation of Israel and the psyche of a people who knew that their days could be numbered and that immediately on the creation of their state, all of their neighbors try to invade them. And then for decades, this is going back and back and forth. I, I talk about this in history with Nasser talking about how he wanted to liquidate them and that you know they were essentially um, ready to be wiped off the map in Yom Kippur. And this was the anniversary of that. Like that this is, you don't have to be totally pro-Israeli, right? Or whatever, but I think to demonize them like that while using a lens of, of simply looking them at them as the oppressor, I think is very, very suspect. But I also think the question go, comes out, there's a great Atlantic article, I forget by who today, about how this decolonization narrative is very faulty as well. And it talks about how there's like this hierarchy of repressed identities and also talking about how it's been racialized, right? Where it's like, oh, it's the, it's the brown people versus the white people, like failing to take into account the Mizrahis, failing to take into account the Bedouins, failing to take into account the Palestinian Israelis, uh, but also failing to take into account that Jews, like if you only see skin color, you don't realize that this is a population that is still not up to the pre-Holocaust levels, right? Like there was, there's a historical tragedy that Western society was responsible for um, that came on the tail end of a lot of other atrocities. And that for once, Jews have their own country. And it has been imperfect every step of the way, which by the way, even Rashid Khalidi pointed out, it's been true of the US, right? Like, I don't know where the listeners to this podcast live, but chances are there were indigenous populations that were here before it. We live in a country with 50 states, one of which is Hawaii, which was annexed in the very recent history in ways that were totally unethical. We have states like California and Texas that were acquired by totally unethical means. Um, You know, those unethical moves went on well, well into our country's history. Now, we wouldn't be okay with people leaving a, a, a reservation and slaughtering babies. We wouldn't be okay with people with you know uh, historical claims to the land that you're sitting in kicking you off your land, right? Like these are things that were that are not okay. And the whole land to the sea narrative is really dangerous. And I would just want people to have sympathy for that. You don't have to agree with everything about Israel. Like we just talked about the settlements, which is you know in a way kicking people off their land and is and is wrong not in a way, is kicking people off their land and is wrong. But like this pseudo intellectualism around this, I find really startling. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, I think the simplest way to put it is the vast majority of Israeli Jews are descendants of people who fled either Arab dictatorship or like European pogroms. I mean, like, that's basically it. Like that 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 is what the population is made up of, which is part of like the sick irony of this conflict from the kind of like, you know, the the Jewish leftist perspective is like the the Israeli state is putting the Palestinian people through an experience that feels and looks a lot like many of the experiences that the Jewish people have had throughout their history. But yeah, you can't just flatten this. I mean, the 
I think part of this is like, this is the result of the kind of Instagramation of this conflict and of, you know, the sort of early 20 year old lefty brains in America. Like people are learning about this on Instagram and TikTok in 90 second reels and in slides. And this is not a conflict that I think you can accurately learn about. I mean, I literally, that Atlantic article you're, you're referencing, I shared it, not because I agreed with everything in it, but because in that one piece in the Atlantic, I think most people who are getting information about you know, this conflict will, will learn more in taking 20 minutes to read that piece with like compact historical narratives about how we got here than they will spending 48 hours straight just scrolling on Instagram and TikTok. But that's how most people are getting their information right now, which is, you know, <laughs> again, at, from my own personal perspective, it is one of the things about this that is just like so alarming and scary is I'm seeing friends of mine who I've been friends with on, you know, in person in real life for a decade and on a social media platform like Instagram or Twitter for, you know, five or six years. And I've never once seen them post anything about Israel or Palestine or indicated any interest in this conflict at all. And then the last week, I'm seeing them just lev level these like incredibly broad statements about who's right and who's wrong and what we should do from here. And, you know, and I'm like, you, you, you're, if you're spending your, this is the first month you've ever given a shit, excuse my language. Like you shouldn't be making these kinds of statements publicly. Like go read a book, please just like any, pick a book off the shelf about the conflict and spend a week reading it before you start blasting stuff off on Instagram. Cause it's something you saw some like information, Instagram influencer see. I mean, it's really, really hard for me to watch. It honestly is. It, I had a, a person who's a doctor uh, in my life, respond to something I had posted when I just initially, when the first thing happened and I, I, like the October 7th happened and I just said, this is an evil act. And, you know, I basically made, I don't signal online very often, but I knew I had a lot of Jewish friends who felt alone, especially on the left, felt like they were being abandoned. And then she writes me basically like very aggressively, like, you don't understand the context. Israel is an occupier, they're an oppressor, yada, yada. And then she sends me a, a Rogan interview of some guy, and she's like, you need to listen to this. And I was like, I will listen to that. But you have to understand, I've been to the country many times. I used to work at the UN. I went there with the UN. I've been to the territories. I've been to Israel multiple times. I was actually supposed to be there last week. Uh, I've read more books than I would like. I've read more books about Israel than my own uh, heritage in India and which I just visited for the first time. I don't claim to be an expert. And actually in rereading it recently, I changed my mind about stuff. Like my initial response to this is very black and white. And then I reread all the history I had. And I'm like, look, I'm still relatively pro-Israel. Like I think most people characterize me that way. But I was reminded of one failure after another by mostly Likud governments, in my opinion, to set us on a path for peace. And I'm also reminded like any human being is that there are a group of people called Palestinians who... Uh, are not in full control over who their government is. But by the way, like the left would understand this because I, you know, don't want people to think I'm Trump, for example, right? Like, like I don't try to think of people as their leadership, especially in a place as imperfectly democratic as the territories have been. And that I want a lasting solution for them and a peace for them and sympathize with their plight at the same time thinking that Israel has a right to exist and um, and that's why I could consider myself pro-Israel. That's what makes you pro-Israel these days, is that you think Israel has the right to exist and has the right to defend its territory in the way that everybody else takes for granted. And I think like part of this is like all these double standards, right? Like we, we our borders are okay. Nobody, nobody disputes what our borders are with Mexico. People might not want to wall on it or whatever, but nobody's talking about rolling it back. Nobody's talking about giving a Hawaii back to indigenous populations, right? Nobody's talking about the fact that we should give Manhattan back to the Algonquins. Right. Nobody's talking about the 500,000 uh, Syrians who died in that civil war since 2011, which you compare to the 120,000 Arabs and Israelis who've died since 1860 in this conflict. Right. Nobody's talking about that. Right. The double standard itself, I think people should look in the mirror and be like, why? Why am I posting so quickly about this? What do I know about Sudan? What do I know about Syria? Why do I have this double standard? Why do I have this exactitude uh, on Israel? Is there something about the Jewish population that maybe? in my lizard brain is doing something weird to me? Or is there something about my decolonial narrative or the way I centralize race that perhaps is 
making it so I miss some incredibly important context. Or maybe I just am thinking about my friends on Instagram and I want to impress the right people. And maybe I don't know shit about this conflict and should just do some work or maybe not care and go back to my life and try to help people around me. But I don't know, choose any of those other than um, justifying dismembering babies and mowing down old people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll I preface this just by saying that I think in our current political environment here in the United States and broadly across the world, I think Arab Muslims are, are subject to probably more discrimination than Jews. I suspect far more, especially in the United States. Um, I think a lot of the tropes that exist in the post 9-11 world are still out there. But to speak to just racism against Jews for a moment, like there is this really bizarre reality that we are both simultaneously viewed as like this dirty, cheap underbelly of society by some people who are anti-Semitic and also simultaneously this incredibly powerful privileged group that's you know controlling the entire world and pulling the strings and so clever and cunning and all these things i mean that is like a a dual kind of anti-semitic racist trope that exists across the world and the the result of that is that we are viewed both by people like the american left as you know being the the almighty all powerful whatever like the classic anti-semitic trope that we're controlling things and we can do whatever we want and you know we could resolve this conflict by snapping our fingers if we wanted to and also by you know the the kind of the racism that exists in the arab world as being like this group that needs to be exterminated because we are like the underbelly of society and it it puts a lot of Jews in this very odd position where there's like, you know, s- sympathies for the anti-Jew cause coming from totally different, you know, 12 o'clock and six o'clock. And um, I think the last few weeks have certainly clarified that for me in a lot of ways by seeing the reaction to Hamas's attack and realizing that in some ways, like it, it feels like we're screwed whether we're the victims or the oppressors and we've been both at at different times in our in our history but um certainly like it i'm seeing that dynamic play out in real time right now yeah and it's like the history is one-sided right like the atlantic article you pointed out too this is the stats that they give uh and and i i do think like you might want to revise up the palestinian number uh, but they say uh, about seven hundred thousand palestinians lost their homes that's an enormous figure in a historic tragedy Starting in 1948, some 900,000 Jews lost their homes in Islamic countries, and most of them moved to Israel. Now, you could quibble with those numbers. I I certainly have seen numbers to revise up the Palestinian numbers. But I think the point is there are Jews that are unwelcome in vast swaths of the Middle East and Pakistan. Now, that doesn't make me uh, anti-Arab. It doesn't make you anti-Arab. I went to the protests over the Muslim ban. I protested the Iraq war. I protested Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. It was animating our politics. And so many of my liberal Jewish friends did the same. Um, They stood up for Muslims when they were being persecuted and will continue to do so. Um, It's not mutually exclusive with believing that Jews need protection in this country. And, and And I implore people to stop looking at Jews as this like elite, all powerful, you know, like oppressor, right? Like anybody else with a country, um, that country has been forged in some, you know, some some things that are heroic and and that everybody should be proud of, and some things that are messy and ugly, right? Just like the country that I'm sitting in right now. And the difference, though, is that we in this country take for granted our borders, right? Nobody, like, no matter on the worst day, none of us have really had to question our borders, right? We don't have to question, you know, a rocket coming in um, from over a fence or a suicide bomber blowing up. Uh, a bus. None of us have had to question that. Uh, and so I ask of people to just think about what that mentality on top of the Holocaust, on top of the pogroms, uh, on top of the Dreyfus affair, on top of your neighbors invading you, on top of a uh, domestic terrorist threat, um, what that does to your psyche. And then think about your friends in civil society and in Western liberal democracies turning on you at the time where you've had your greatest atrocity in most Jews' lifetimes. You know, like, what does that do? Think about that. What does that do to your mentality? And maybe what can you do to help 
you know, maybe reverse that. That doesn't mean you, you're a pro Netanyahu, like, you know, level the Gaza Strip type, but maybe you're a little bit more sympathetic to having a state and, you know, the messiness that's required of having a state when you're surrounded by people, many of whom want to destroy you. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's, it's well said. I, I can't add a word to it, honestly. Well, okay, Isaac, uh, this is wonderful. Uh, please uh, send us your hate mail. Um, I forget <laughs> our, our voicemail, but we've got it. And send in your questions. Like, look, there are two parts of my brain, right? Listeners, listen to part two of the history, even for those who disagree with everything I said. I hope I've earned your trust in part one of the history to know that, look, there's a lot of stuff. And actually part two, there's going to be a lot more that's that's inconvenient to the narrative that I just described and my views, right? A lot of messiness, a lot of ugliness, because uh, I'll pick up in the late 90s and take us through all the way almost up until this day, which is a period of time dominated by Hamas and Netanyahu. And so if you were depressed during part one, get ready for part two, because it gets much worse. Like we go from the period of time of Rabin and Arafat uh, and Ehud Barak and Arafat and Bill Clinton, Rabin and Arafat, to then Trump and Hamas and Netanyahu and Biden. I mean, it's to say we've swapped out, like, look, we could say a lot about Arafat, but he was a historic figure with amongst his population, you know? Like, he represented, at that time, both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, right? Like, you, you, we moved from a position where they had probably the best chance at peace to a place now where things couldn't look worse. Uh, and so get ready for that. That is the worst sales pitch ever for a podcast, but um, <laughs> I'm really impressed by the audience's desire to learn that history. And so listen to that. Isaac, we'll have you back for sure. Um, this has been great. Uh, our voicemail actually, okay. 321 I'm sure we missed some stuff, got some stuff wrong, could have covered some other stuff better. That's why we look to hear from you. Thank you very much, Isaac. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.